Hi, I'm Mercy from Denver, Colorado. We want y'all come to Denver. We've got 20 feet of snow in the mountains. Do come up and slide down. There's none in Denver. There's no snow in Denver. I would like to thank the committee for inviting me here. This is a great convention for me. It's a great place to be because I'm back in Kansas and Missouri, close to Missouri, where I have so many friends. It's like coming home. And I have heard so few of the speakers that it's a big treat to be here and hear new people and be with old people. I mean, excuse me. I mean, people I've met before. It, and I also would like to thank the, the, the signers. I have a child in my family born without hearing, and I know how much work they do. I'm very grateful to be in their presence. I, I'm very happy that your committee has seen fit to do this. I think it's a fine thing to do. I've been coming to these rooms for a long time now. I've always been glad to come to all of them, except maybe the first one. Remember when you came in new? Were you enchanted to be here? I wasn't. I came here in the, in the 60s. Yeah, half of you don't remember the 60s. I mean, I've got pantyhose older than half of you. But, but the 60s were beehive hairdos, sprayed and lacquered and painted and shellacked and kept in place with 500 bobby pins. They had to give those up when they began to put security in airports because you couldn't get through <laughs> because of the bobby pins. And all those ladies in that room had purple or, or gold hair and all of it was piled up on top of their heads and I did not feel as if I had found my spiritual home. <laughs> I had waist-length hair. I was trying to be a hippie. I was much too old to be a hippie, but I didn't want to miss out on anything that looked like it was good, so I was doing my best to be a hippie. Uh, the hippies thought that, I don't know exactly what they thought I was, but I thought I was cool. I came in that room carrying lots of baggage that I grew up with, that I acquired as I came along, but I came into that room to something that was brand new in my life. I walked into that room and I understood that if I crossed that threshold, I admitted I was a failure because that's the rooms where the failures were. Those were the people who hadn't been able to control their lives as we should control our lives. Those were the people who were not good wives and good mothers and good employers and employees. Those were the failures and that if I crossed that threshold, I was admitting I was a failure and I didn't want to do that, but I didn't have any alternative. Uh, I walked into that room and sat down and I was quiet and you know I'm not usually real quiet but I was beaten and in that room they gave me what I hope you're still giving to newcomers who come here they gave me unconditional love and I had never felt that before now I'm not going to tell you that I grew up in a miserable unhappy childhood but I always felt as if I, I, I was loved but I would be loved more if that love was something I needed to, to earn, that I would be loved better if I cleaned my room better than I did, if I got better grades than I did, all kinds of things that I would have to do to be loved. And I walked into that room and the ladies that I had already judged on the basis of their hairdo just loved me. And I didn't know that I was supposed to get well. In fact, I didn't know I was sick. But I came back to that meeting and to those meetings because in that room it was safe and they loved me and I could just feel that. I think we talked less about love and demonstrated love more at that meeting than anyone I've been to in, of late years. I grew up in New England. New England is not a place, it's a state of mind and a set of rules. I lived in New England even when my mailing address was Turkey. I still lived in New England. We just picked it up and took it with us wherever we went. A lot of the rules were, were very good rules. Uh, they let us live together in a civilized manner and be polite to each other. But, Lord, there were a lot of them. They just, my, my mother was the 12th generation to be born. I was the 12th generation of my mother's family 
born in the same house in Boston, Massachusetts, and all the ladies in all the previous generations had all got to make rules, and I got to obey them. And, I, you know, they, were, they felt heavy to me. I grew up not in a Christian home, but in a church-going home. My father was a practicing agnostic. My mother sort of believed in God. I read the perfect description of our family uh, in, a, in a book the other day. It said of one of the characters in the book that she was a fine woman. She really believed in church and Christianity. She really admired church and Christianity, but she didn't believe it. And that's what we did. We went to church because it was a social thing to do didn't have much to do with God and I heard about God and I didn't care for him I just didn't like him I mean he was unreasonable in the demands that he made um, he was always upset about what you ate and when you ate it and what you wore and how you talked and all kinds of things that didn't seem they seemed very trivial to me actually um, and besides, if you're going to hell for hot dogs on Friday night, I had a lot more interesting things I thought I'd like to investigate. <laughs> uh, and he was always broke. He just In New England, you learn to manage money. It's part of growing up. You absolutely learn to, to manage money. And God couldn't manage money well. He was always going broke, and they always had to take up a special collection for him to bail him out. And he just seemed totally incompetent to me. So I dismissed him. By the time I was six or seven years old, I no longer believed in God. I had a little resurgence of that belief when I was about ten because I really wanted a horse. And people told me you could get what you prayed for. So I prayed diligently for a horse, and I got a baby sister, and that did it. <laughs> uh, I don't care for anybody with a sense of humor like that. I, in our house was was nice, neat, orderly. Meals were efficient and on time. If you grew up in the chaos of alcoholism and and yelling and screaming and maybe violence. Probably my life would sound ideal to you, but the fact is, it was dull. I wanted to have an adventure. I wanted to go where the music was, was slow and the men were fast. I wanted to get out of a nice, pleasant, orderly existence and have an adventure and go someplace and do something. Of course, I had lived in 12 different countries by the time I was, I'd lived in eight countries by the time I was 12 years old. But that didn't count because we always just lived in New England at a different address. I, I wanted to do something exciting. So I got married when I was 17. Uh, the truth of that is I got married because I thought I was pregnant and I thought you got pregnant by kissing with your mouth open. Hey, they weren't giving out condoms in my high school. It's a long time ago. It was a different world. Uh, My marriage endured six weeks. We had a thing called a war, and it was very hazardous to your health. And my husband flew out of Hickam Field and didn't fly in again. And at 17, I was still in high school. I would have been thrown out of high school in, in that generation had it been known that I was married. So it was a secret. And that's one of the things my family was really good at, was keeping secrets. We didn't have any, but we kept them anyway. There wasn't anything really awful going on that needed to be kept a secret. It was Bill Wilson, who's also a New Englander, talks about it in the, in the big book when he says, we hope that no one will think these revelations are in bad taste. And it was simply, you know, it was before Phil and, and the rest of that group and it was when your business was your business and you didn't tell anybody else because it was simply in bad taste. Uh, so I kept my marriage a secret. I told my father. I always planned to tell my mother, but 40 years later when she died, I hadn't gotten around to it. We're, we're good at secrets. And now I was off to college, out of town, ready to go and have the adventure. And of course I needed a man to have the adventure with. Of course. 
began an adventure all alone. So I began to look for, you know, for somebody to be Rusty's husband, father of Rusty's children. And I found somebody had the most beautiful eyebrows. God, he has wonderful eyebrows. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I was 19. What do you want from me? I wasn't looking for maturity in, in a great program of wonderful souls. Had a guitar and eyebrows. What else do you need? And he came from a family that was not like us, was not going to be dull and drab in his house. People in his family saw little animals that weren't visible to the rest of us and occasionally found it necessary to take a shot at one. It was, I thought, it was colorful. And I could hardly wait. In fact, I married him six weeks after I met him. I could just hardly wait to get into all the color, all that colorfulness. And I immediately began to make it just a little different than it was. I never asked anyone to make a great big seed change. I just wanted them to modify a little. Just, you know, they had, they were colorful on Tuesdays and Thursdays, days in the middle of the week, and anybody knows you always should be colorful on weekends. Not work nights, not school nights, just colorful on weekends. Modify it a little, not change, just modify a little, and they wouldn't do it. They just did not modify. Also, I grew up, some days I just wanted to get through college and get out there and, and get into the world. And some days I just wanted to be wife and mom. And I happened to meet him on one of the wife and mom days. And so I decided I would love to have 12 children. And I got married with the intent of having 12 children. I had six before I figured out I only wanted three. <laughs> I, I, literally, that's true. I had six children before the oldest one was eight years old. I had six little boys. If, if your life is boring and you don't have anything to do, try having six kids in eight years. It will give you something to do. I was, I was kind of busy. I didn't have a whole lot of time to ask myself big philosophical questions like, am I happy? What is life about? I changed diapers and wiped noses and made meals, and that's about it. In a lot of ways it was fun, but in a lot of ways it was really busy. And of course, if you have that many children that quickly, have to double up some. My mother was saying unkind things about litters. Uh, <laughs> my mother-in-law, who had 17, was not impressed with what I was whining about with only seven. <laughs> I felt kind of, and I was, I was lost and afraid. I didn't, I didn't know how to manage seven kids. My husband, you know, mostly just played cards after work and then went to sleep. And so I, I felt like I was in charge and that it was very important for me to get this done right. And my goal became to keep all of them out of jail until they were old enough for the penitentiary. I succeeded in that when the youngest one was 21. Uh, that's what the oldest told me, is you kept us all out of jail so we're all eligible now for the penitentiary. None of them went to the penitentiary. But um, something was wrong in that family, and I didn't know what. I just didn't know what. I grew up in a family where everyone drank and no one abused alcohol. I knew a lot about alcohol and nothing about the ism little kids in our family, you know, if they didn't sleep well, you soaked their nipples for their bottles, you soaked them in brandy and gave it to the kid and they went to sleep well. Sometimes it was hard to wake them up, but they went to sleep real good. We, I drank as long as I can remember. I can remember being too young for coffee and never too young for wine. And I never saw anybody abuse alcohol. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what it felt like. I didn't know what was wrong in my family, but I, I had twins, and when the twins were, oh, in their 13th year, they began to drink. For so their 13th birthday, I gave them a really cool birthday present. I gave them a baby sister, just like I got, so yeah, yeah. 
Um, uh, we were going to call her Encore because she wasn't on the original program. <laughs> but she was very special to me in a lot of ways. I think if you wait a long time for a same-sex child, that child is special to you. It isn't that I didn't love the boys. It's just that it seemed like this little girl would have the life I would have had if I hadn't made any mistakes and that I would be able to show her how to avoid mistakes and she would have a wonderful life and she would be very wonderful. And she is very wonderful, but not the way I had planned. And the twins, to celebrate their birthday, had their first drinks. They uh, never did learn to drink like gentlemen. First time they drank, their friends brought them home and stacked them on the front porch like cordwood and then ran so I wouldn't catch them. And the twins caught it because I didn't catch them. But you know, in a lot of ways, it was a relief because we, we knew something was wrong. No one in that family was happy. And we didn't know why. And suddenly, we had the reason. It was the twins and the drinking. It was, we didn't call it alcoholism. It was, it was the drinking. It was the twins. They were to blame, and they got blamed. And we explained to them why their, their drinking kept me from making any more career moves because I was so concerned with their drinking and if you would just stop that. In the meantime, we'd moved to a town in New Mexico. You have those towns in Kansas and Missouri, I know, because I've driven through some. And, you know, you, you go down, it's not even the interstate, it's just a road, and it says, yield ahead, and in a couple minutes it says, resume speed, and that was the town. I, I heard a speaker in, in the South someplace say that he grew up in a town where the, uh, the entertainment center was a bird bath and a slingshot. And that's about the kind of a town this was. Um, we, were, we were living there and running a newspaper. But we, we had now, uh, we had to get out of there. The newspaper was, was dying. The twins were the public disgrace. So we explained to them that their brothers were not getting good grades and it was because they were embarrassed by their drinking, the twins drinking. Everything was because of the twins drinking and it was a release. And fortunately, because of the family I grew up in, I know what to do about that. I know how to cure alcoholism. There are doctors who think it's caused by a shortage of value in the bloodstream, but I know that it's a shortage of education and they just needed to learn how to drink properly. And so I began to buy alcohol. I never thought of consulting my husband or his family because obviously they didn't know how to drink. I mean, they just opened their throats and poured the stuff down. They didn't understand how to appreciate alcohol like my family did. And so I started to teach the twins to drink properly, what, what wines enhance the flavor of what foods, white wine goes with fish and the twins learn to drink white wine with fish and without. Uh, my, my big boy seeing that it was costing more for the wine than the fish uh, was to teach them to drink very expensive liquor because they're just teenagers and they can't afford enough to get drunk. Do you ever see a drunk who couldn't afford enough to get drunk? I mean, I, taught, I bought the best French brandy in the right glasses and I taught them to pour the brandy down the side of the glass so as not to bruise it. I hold the glass and turn it in your hands to keep it at the right temperature uh, that you open your mouth and inhale across your palate the bouquet of the brandy. It should take an hour and a half to drink an ounce and a half. If you're new in Al-Anon and you have somebody at your house that's taken an hour and a half to drink an ounce and a half, you can join Weight Watches or Bird Watches or Toll Painting. You don't have to come here and do all this hard work, honey. That's not alcoholism. <coughs> Excuse me. But my best bet was alcohol seriously interferes with school grades. You may not know that. So I decided that they would either get passing grades or their enlistment papers. At that time, the Navy had a thing called a kitty cruise. 
and you could go in at, not I could, but they could, go in at 16 and get their high school diploma in the service and come out, I think it was at 20, it may have been at 21. I think it was a four-year enlistment and they came out at 20. Uh, we had a, another war going on at that point, you know, and so uh, with the Navy was calling that enlistment the Kitty Cruise and I shortly had a couple of kitties cruising in the South Pacific. Chuck finished his enlistment, but his commanding officer would not allow him to re-enlist. And I got a note from Bernie's commanding officer. It said Bernie was being discharged from the service. Now, the branch of the service that I grew up was Army and Air Force, and we knew about drunken sailors. I'd heard about them all my life. And I got this note that said, Bernie is too drunk to be a drunken sailor. And it just seemed to me that that had to be pretty awful drunk. And I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. But I grew up in a family that was very politically active. And so I wrote to my congressman, and probably yours, and I asked them all to save my child from being discharged from the service. And they wrote back, you know how politicians write? Two pages, single-spaced, and all it said was no. And so I was even more frightened because I knew that, that having Bernie, the, the drunk, come home would be the catalyst that would land them all in, in the penitentiary, that that would be it, that they would all follow him on the road to hell, stopping for 20 years at the penitentiary. So I was truly desperate, and I do what any right-thinking, politically-oriented American mother would do. I call the President of the United States. <laughs> it's easier than you think. It's a listed number. You can get it from information, and at that time, you could even ask the operator to, direct, to ring it for you. Now you can direct dial. Now, I have an answering machine. And I was not calling the office of the president, I was calling his house. Would you expect to find an operator, a telephone operator in a house? I wouldn't. Uh, maybe an answering machine. Actually, I thought I'd get Ladybird and she'd say, well, Lyndon's out walking the dog, but as soon as he gets through, I'll have him tend to it. But you get that, that operator and that woman is cold, and you are not going to get past her. And I did not get the president. I thought it was a sad commentary on the state of the United States right now that an honest American citizen would not have access to the presidency, but I could not gain that access, and I was truly, truly, truly desperate and I didn't know where to turn. By that time, we were living uh, in a town a little east of Denver, had a weekly newspaper, the kind that we folded in, in Springer. And it, in that paper, they had, you know, like the ad for a lost cat, about three lines in the back. There was an, an ad there from some strange group. It didn't say what the name of the group was. It just said, is there a problem of alcohol in your life? If so, call this number. I have had it. I am truly desperate. I called the number. And the strangest thing happened. A man answered that phone, and he said his name, and then he said, and I'm an alcoholic. Come on. Ah, ah, I don't believe that. Alcoholism is a kind of a secret. Nobody just walks up to a phone or a person and says their name, and I'm an alcoholic. Obviously, that is very strange. That is a secret that he should not be telling to strangers on the phone. But I explained to him that I had an, a problem of alcoholism in my family and he would be home Tuesday. And that I needed somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous to help me out. I explained carefully to this man because I thought he was a little foolish since he answered in such a silly way. I explained to him that I worked 3 to 11, my husband worked 9 to 5, and we would only need someone from Alcoholics Anonymous for a few hours to watch him while we got some sleep. <laughs> and the man said, we don't do that. 
I said, you know, if you started doing this, you'd grow a lot faster. If you want to get new members, this, this one is really an alcoholic. The federal government has certified him, and you could get him easy. And he said, did, did he ask you to call me? And I said, oh, no. He's a very wily little drunk. We'll have to have a plot for catching him at the airport. And he said, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't do that. And I again explained what a chance they were missing. And, but then he did something really strange. Now you have to understand, I'm the person in my family, you notice we've moved quite a bit, and I'm the one who always gets a job. I keep that job as long as we stay in that town. I get raises, I get promotions. My kids have their homework read by me when I come home at midnight and corrected for in the morning. I do the laundry, the house is clean and orderly, I buy the food, I am holding this family together in the palm of my hand and this weird little man said to me, perhaps you're sick. I said, excuse me? <laughs> you know, but I thought about it. I, I replayed that tape sort of in my head, and it had sounded strange all the way through. And so I caught on to what he was saying. He thought I was the drunk. I knew, I knew that right away. And, you know, he said he'd have his wife call me, and that clinched it. It was then perfectly clear to me what was going on here. Because as a man, he can't come to my house and pat me down to the bottle. He has to send a woman. And his wife was coming out to find my bottle <coughs> to take care of me properly. I could just see it. Can't you see it? Can't you see the big white stationary station wagon in my nice suburban neighborhood with the big sign on the side that says Alcoholics Anonymous SWAT Team. <laughs> but I was in trouble. I was seriously in trouble here because I'd broken a big rule. In New England, we keep our business to ourselves. We do not become beholden to other people. We do not burden them with our troubles. And I had taken up this man's time, and time is as valuable as money, and so I have to pay that debt, and I have to pay it quickly. And when he said his wife would, would call me, I had to allow her to do that so the debt would be canceled. And she did, in fact, call me, and I talked to her. Now, I talked to everybody. I say, is it always this windy in Kansas? I say, do you think the Broncos will ever field a team? How about the Rockies? But I talked to her. That's chatting. I talked. I told her that I felt alone and afraid in my house, that I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to do it and I didn't know what was next. I really talked to her and I dug my hole deeper. I was more indebted than ever. So when she said that I should go to a meeting, I had to go. There was no choice. I had to go. I had to pay the debt. And I figured... They'll give her a place setting or a teapot or gold stamps or something, whatever they give the person who brings in the most new members, and it'll, the, debt, the debt will be paid, and I'll be out of here. And I walked into the room with the ladies with the immovable hair who loved me, and I've been coming back to these rooms ever since. I didn't plan to do any of the steps. I didn't plan to do anything. I just wanted to be there and be loved. But Bernie came home from the service, and my husband and I had, for once in our lives, agreed on something. We said he either has to go to AA or he can't stay here. And Bernie went to AA, and something happened. It wasn't just that he stopped drinking. It wasn't an absence. It was a presence. AA lights the light behind the eyes. And I saw the lights come on behind Bernie's eyes, and I saw sobriety come to Bernie. And whatever that was, I wanted it, because it didn't just that he stopped drinking, it's that he changed. He became a 
I don't mean that he went to 90 meetings in 90 days and they fitted him full wings and a halo, but there were changes in how he responded to life. And I saw that and I liked it and I wanted to get it. And I asked Bernie how to do it and he said, well, I would either have to drink more so I could get an AA or I'd have to get it from Al-Anon. And I got drunk once and it was terrible. I didn't want to do it again. So I decided I'd get it in Al-Anon. And I went back and looked at the steps that I'd been given and decided I would do them. Well, I would do the ones that applied to me. Um, I thought I would begin with four. So I wrote my autobiography, basically. I wrote what was wrong in my life and who did it to me. I had a thing called a temporary sponsor that we used to give at that time in, in the Denver area. Um, it was somebody who was to be your sponsor until you got smart enough to get a sponsor. But I didn't know that. I, I thought she was assigned to keep me from disgracing Ellen on in public. And that I, but I should talk to her. And I used to call her and say, you know, I want you to talk to me about the philosophy of Al-Anon here. And she would say, have you fed the dog? And I'd say, no. And she said, well, feed the dog. Why would I feed the dog? Because he can't open the can. <laughs> oh. She was very practical and down-to-earth type sponsor. She was exactly what I needed. I didn't know she was temporary. And so I called her and asked her if I could come to her house and take the fifth step with her. Uh, and she said I could. I mean, she said, come on over. I, that's a, that was the only lie you ever told me in, in this program. Doesn't it sound like she would hear my fifth step? Well, go to her house and see how she treats you. <laughs> I, you know, I heard sponsors describe that a sponsorship meeting is lovely, familial birds holding the babies under their wings. I want you to know that Biddy liked to peck me to death. <laughs> I went to her house and she said, how did you get to the fourth step? I said, I didn't get there. I started there. And that's the step I decided to do. Oh, she said, we number them so you'll know where to start. I said, Again, excuse me, honey, you did not finish high school. I have two master's degrees, and I'm not taking anything off you. She said, you don't have to. It's fine. She said, before you leave, I want to thank you for coming to my home and sharing with me the love and peace that permeates your life. This is not what I had planned on. I thought she would correct my fourth step the way you correct the paper, the, the way an editor would, create, would correct the submission, that she would say, born in New England, too bad, too late. Married the wrong man, get a divorce. Too many children, give them custody of a bunch. But she would tell me how to make my life work. And she would not. She made me start with the first step. First step, that's why I was there. My life was unmanageable. I put a little parenthesis in that said, as far as the alcoholic is concerned, but I didn't tell her that because she seemed to be easily upset and I didn't want to arouse her. I didn't mention the parenthesis to her and we worked on the first step for quite a while. And we got to the second. The second step is the hardest step for me. It, it was, it still is, it maybe always will be. I, I got an assignment. I think she was a frustrated school teacher and she liked to give people assignments. My assignment was to write the three most powerful things in the world. And I wrote time and wind and tide because mankind has no control over any of them. I wrote a nice little monograph with each one of those so she would be as impressed with my education as I was. And she didn't read the monograph, but she did at least look at the paper. She hadn't looked at my absolutely perfect, wonderful, well thought out four step, but she did read this. She said, I'm glad to see that your name does not appear on this list. <laughs> and we had to work the second step for a long time because I didn't have a higher power. I didn't believe in any, anything 
that I couldn't see, feel, or touch, see, feel, or hear. I didn't believe in a God or a higher power of any kind. I had not been well dealt with by him, I guess. I just didn't believe in it, and it took me a very long time of working on this step and working on the rest of the steps when I got this one to get here. I got an assignment in the third step to write three positive things about God. I didn't remember that until a few weeks ago uh, when I was working a third step that that had been my assignment to take because all I knew about God is what I didn't want him to be. I don't want the God of parking lots. I don't want the God of chess. I don't want the God, you know, the chess God that moves people around whether they want to go or not. He's just got an end in mind and he doesn't care about you. He just moves people around. I didn't want... I had a whole lot of gods I didn't want, but I didn't have any gods that I did want. And so I had to write three positive statements about God. That was my assignment. And I did that and I began to get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what God could be in my life. I worked the rest of the steps. I got into service work. I held most of the offices and, and did most of the things that I was told to do in Al-Anon. It was very helpful because it made my circle wider. It made it bigger. So I had a bigger uh, circle of friends. I had a bigger circle of support. I did all those things. I'd been in program quite a while and I thought I had it made. But you know, at the end of every meeting, they, when we read the close in there, it says there is no sorrow too great to be lessened. That was an important thing for me in that, that I learned in Al-Anon. It was important to me that I heard that because I thought Al-Anon worked like, like or a rabbit's foot, that once you got in, everything would be fine. Nothing bad would ever happen to you again. I was working my usual 3 to 11 shift when my daughter called me from the police station in the town where we were living, in the suburb where we lived, and told me that she had preferred charges of rape and incest against her father. I cannot tell you how angry I was. This language, and probably no language, is adequate to tell you how angry I was. I did what you taught me to do in this program. If you do what you taught in this program, you can get through. I called my sponsor. I went, of course, and got my daughter out of the police station. And my sponsor was at that time way on the other side. I called her and she said what sponsors say. She said, shall I come for you or can you drive your car? Hey, I'm from New England. I'm cool. I can handle things. I can drive the car. I drove the car. I took my daughter. And they did what you did for me at the first meeting. You loved us. They loved us. You loved us at that meeting. They loved us when we got there. They put my daughter to bed. They rubbed her back. They told her that it would be all right and that she was loved and she was fine and good and she was loved and could be loved. Uh, my sponsor had... I used to call him a bandy rooster. No, you know these little guys in AA. They're five, seven on the outside and they're, oh, seven, sixteen on the inside. And they don't know that that they're supposed to stay out of Al-Anon and they think, like you said last night, if the hand reaches out, well, a hand, he thought it was a hand reached out there and he didn't know he was supposed to stay out of Al-Anon and I'm so glad. Uh, you know, those little guys, if you're drowning, they'll come save you. They come with the flaps going on their old pickup trucks, the windshields, wipers going in, in the fenders flapping and they get to where you're drowning and they rush out, get a boat, rush out. You're about to go down for the third time. They put an oar in the water. You grab hold of it and they read you the big book before they pull you in. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of, that, that's about what John was like. He sort of, he was willing to pull me in the boat but he was going to tell me about it first. And he read me the part in the big book in the last in the last of the stories in the big book that describes if you have a, a resentment against someone you should pray for them and you should ask for that person all the good things that you would ask for yourself. It wasn't the good news either. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I was too angry to do it. I could not do it. 
but you did what you, they did what you do always in this program. You never tell me to do something and leave me alone without showing me how. And my sponsor was at my house on a daily basis. Other people came, other people talked to me, other people loved me again until I could love. And I have to be loved till I can learn. I can't learn when I'm not loved. And they loved me until I could learn. I went home and I knelt down by my bed the way that I had been told to do, because I try to do it, I'm told, and I said, God damn him. And I was not cussing. I, that was a prayer. I meant it. That's exactly what I wanted to have happen. And it did not happen overnight that I could move from that spot. But enough of you came, enough of you loved me, my sponsor was strong enough and loving enough. And she was wrong. Just once in my whole association with that woman, she was wrong. She said it would work with step six and seven, and it didn't, because I couldn't get to step six and seven. I couldn't ask to have that defect removed, because I loved it. I loved feeling better than. I felt morally superior to him. I felt on, on the moral high ground. I felt so good hating him that I didn't want to give it up. And I had to go back to my ancient nemesis, the second step, and look at that and ask to be willing to be restored to sanity and know that I couldn't restore myself to sanity. You could talk to me till you were blue and I, I could hear what you were saying in my head but not in my heart and that I couldn't, I couldn't give that up. I loved it too dearly and that I had to go back to the second step and be restored to sanity because that putting that much energy into rage is truly insane. And I, I, I divorced him, of course. I can't take that back into the house with my children. I, I divorced him. Four years after we were divorced, uh, the cancer that had been present for a long time in his lungs became acute and he was dying. And because I came here and he taught me, I was able to take him to California. He wanted to visit our son who was then living in California. And I was able to take him and leave him to visit and go and bring him back the airline said he was too ill to fly without, uh, without uh, medical help. And because I was a nurse, I was able to fly with him and bring him back. And less than a week after he was back, we buried him. I had planned to dance at his funeral and be happy, and I was not. Because I came here and because you taught me about miracles and about love. I understood that I would never love that man the way a man should be loved by a wife, but that I could love him as a fellow child of God and as a sufferer from a terrible disease, and that I could come to know that the man with the wonderful eyebrows and the guitar never wanted his life to go where that had gone, that it was the disease and not the man, and it took me a long time to be able to make that separation and know the difference between the disease and the person who had it. Uh, my ex-husband had been dead a very short time when my youngest son, one nice spring morning in Denver, uh, put a shotgun against his head and blew it off. I cannot tell you how angry I was. My first reaction to almost everything is to be angry. But I did what you taught me to do. I called my sponsor. And my sponsor did what sponsors do. She loved me. She came to my house, she held me, and she said, you and I are going to work on the third step again. When, the, when we get through this, we'll work on the third step. And we worked again on the third step and the second step and, and trying to firm up what I could believe about a God because I was angry. I could not see why God could not have prevented this. And it took me a long time of working the good old second step again before I could begin to go on with my life, but I could do that because you were all there. People whose, whose faces I couldn't remember sent me cards and letters and told me that this had happened in their lives too, and this is what they had done to get through with it, and I got support from everybody. I've gotten so much more out of the program than I put in. Michael had been dead about two years when my middle son put a rope around his neck and jumped to his death. I was visiting in the Midwest and I did what she taught me to do. They called me, I went home, my 
took my sisters and all this listening, took them home with me and did what you taught me to do. I uh, called my sponsor. I think I put, I called my sponsor first and put down my suitcase second. And I was angry with her too. And I said to her, when this is over, you and I are visiting about the third step because I'm sick and tired of turning my will and my life over to the care of God and having God take my children. She said what sponsors say, because sponsors live their life close enough to God that when he needs an English-speaking voice, he gets one. There's, she said God doesn't take your children. God receives your children. And that made all the difference in the world to me and made it possible for me to go on with my life. I have tried to do that. I try to come here and talk to you about this kind of thing. Um, so you too will know that you can go on because God doesn't take you to these. Uh, I think this program is about miracles. I have a son who had 20 years of sobriety. Bernie, I told you about him. After 20 years of sobriety, Bernie went out to drink socially. He'd been here so long, and they weren't saying anything new. And he was quite sure he could now be a social drinker. He'd just been a wild kid, not really an alcoholic. And so he could go out and drink socially. He drank socially for about six weeks, and he drank unsocially for three and a half years after that. I mean, I don't think fucking Jack Daniels out of a box and a pickup, out of a bag and a pickup truck on the side of a mountain is social drinking. I know I don't know much about drinking, but I know that's not social. And he came back. Bernie will have five years back in this program because when we come through the doors of these rooms, you love us. And Bernie will have five years in May, I think, back in this program. Thank you. Bernie's twin brother is also alcoholic, was 10 years longer than Bernie in sobering up. It wasn't pleasant to watch, but you told me here that it wasn't my business, and so I just watched, except I prayed a little on the side, just once. Bernie, uh, Chuck will now, will in, in March, have 15 years in program. My, he was severely burned in an industrial accident a couple of years ago and he was very afraid because he was going to have to take narcotic painkillers to have the severe burns debris. He was really afraid of what that was going to do to his alcoholism. Uh, the doctor on his case had said that anybody who said they were a friend of Bill Wilson's could come in to see him. And anybody who said he was a friend of Bill Wilson's could talk to him on the phone. Uh, a lady called him. A woman in California called and told the nurse that she was a, a friend of Bill Wilson's and she wanted to speak to the person in there with the bad burns. She didn't even know his name. And she talked to him. He doesn't know her name. I don't know whether she didn't say it or he didn't hear it. But she talked to him all the way through the experience of having the burns degraded. I don't know who she was. He doesn't know who she was. Those are miracles. Those are two miracles. They don't belong to me, though. They're, they're AA miracles. They're my son's miracles. My daughter, my poor little daughter, went to therapy, came to program, worked with it very hard, I decided, I saw with the aid of my sponsor that I owed her an amend. Now I take no responsibility whatever for anyone else's action or what happened to her. But I worked 3 to 11 by choice. I had enough seniority that I could have worked days and I didn't want to be in that house. I didn't know what was wrong there. I truly did not know. But I knew it was unpleasant and uncomfortable and I didn't want to stay there. And I left the child in a situation that I wouldn't stay in myself, and I thought that was what let go and let God meant, that he was supposed to take care of her. 
And now I know that let go and let God does not mean that I get to abdicate my responsibility. I was there. That I was God's answer to what should happen to her, how she should be protected, and I didn't do it. And I had to make an amend to her. Uh, I said to her at the end of that amend, what can I do to make it right? You can't give her back a childhood. Uh, my daughter said we can be friends, and so we're friends. It's very different to be friends with a grown-up child than it is to be mother. And then mothers get to say, isn't that spirit a little short? Um, are you still going with him? Isn't he a little old for you, dear? But friends don't get that. Friends have to say, I'm vulnerable too. Can you help me? And I do say that. I got in, in a physical problem a little while ago, and I called her up. She sounded like a sponsor. She said, now, Mom, you just go in and take a nice hot bath and read a while and go to bed, and I'll be down in the morning. That's what friends do. She's my friend. Thank you. It would not have been possible if you had not done what you do in these meetings. Uh, my daughter has a daughter. Everybody who's heard this before has heard me whining and moaning about my daughter's daughter. Heather had run away from, from home and school, her father, her mother, her aunt, uh, halfway houses, and a number of other things, 17 times before she was 17 years old. Uh, I got to sit in a courtroom and hold my daughter's hand while they brought in her daughter in handcuffs and leg restraints. Uh, it's not pleasant that I got to be there for her. I want to tell you that Heather has a 15-month clean and sober. Thank you very much. <laughs> the chair that I asked you, I was always saying to people, save an empty chair till Heather gets there, the chair's filled. Heather's clean and sober. Thank you very much. Those are all miracles. Bernie's miracle, Chuck's miracle, Reese's miracle, but my miracle is that I came here afraid, alone, and without a God. I've been here long enough, I've been with you people long enough that I am not afraid. I have never been alone since the first day I came in, and now I have a God of my own, of my own understanding. And thank you. I come to say thank you. I have a prayer that I use when I close. And if you will indulge me, I'll use it now. The prayer is, for everything that has been, thank you. To everything that can be, yes, thank you. Thank you.